0: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 12 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers
1: and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Seth Godin about how to live in our difficult political moment. What we have to figure out is how to disconnect ourselves from the circle of fear and from the circle of contempt and even panic and make something that matters instead. Here's Debbie Milman. In the world
0: of marketing, Seth Godin is an established and savvy master. If you type Seth into Google, for example, the top result is his blog. If you search for Seth Godin on Amazon, his 18 books pop up, all of which have been bestsellers. He's much more than a marketer though. He writes trenchantly about work, career, and personal growth. Some of his titles are Tribes, We Need You to Lead Us, and Linchpin, Are You Indispensable? He's here to talk about his career and his brand new book, What Does It Sound Like When You Change Your Mind? Seth Godin, welcome to Design Matters.
1: Thank you, my friend. Thanks for having me.
0: Seth, this is our fourth interview together. My first interview with you was actually on Design Matters. You came on the show when it was an infant back in 2007.
1: I think that one was on vinyl.
0: <laughs> yes, indeed. I know it was actually an 8-track. <laughs> um, believe it or not, I didn't really ask you much about your origins. So I'd like to ask you just a few questions about your background on becoming Seth Godin. You cool with that? We'll give it a try. Okay. I understand that when you were 14, you started your first business. What kind of business was it?
1: Well, first we've got to be clear about what a business is for. For me, business has never been, how do I do something to make a lot of money? In the case of the project I did when I was 14, there was an auction on public television to raise money for the station. And I had access to a mainframe computer that could print out biorhythm charts. And the idea was that I would auction off customized biorhythm charts to raise money for the public TV station. How'd you do? Well, they raised a few hundred bucks, but then it turned out people who got it wanted more. So I started selling them to the people who wanted them. But then someone sent me a note saying that their triple zero day had been a day that something horrible had happened and their dog had died. And could I do one for everyone in their family? And I said to myself, wow, people believe this. No, I'm done. It's sort of like astrological charts, right? exactly. And I was just done.
0: (laughs) You also read your father's
1: copies of Forbes. What did your father do for a living? Well, and I got and I once had a letter to the editor printed. in Really? Forbes, How, back old in the day. How old were you? How old were you? I was sixteen.
0: What did you write about?
1: He had written an article about college tuition, and he had gotten the definition of tuition wrong because he had included room and board. And he being who? The author. Oh, editor. the author. Okay. And it just bothered me because Forbes, in that time and pretty much to the current, had this attitude that they were pretty certain in their correctness. So I just wrote a note saying, you know, that school's really expensive, but you didn't get the number right. Uh, My dad, until I was 16, was VP of finance for a company in Buffalo that made parts for nuclear weapons and hydrotronic controls and fancy CNC machines. Then he had an argument with the CEO because CEO was violating SEC law. And the CEO said, look, my name's on the door, yours isn't, you should leave. And my father left and he ended up Almost buying the company that makes wax lips and the little wax bottles of Coca-Cola. Mm-hmm. You know those things? Yeah, parties, party yeah, favors. exactly. But he didn't and ended up buying a little company that makes hospital cribs. Not a very big company and it's still around. My sister runs it in Buffalo, New York. So I grew up in a factory with real workers making real items by bending real metal to make an item that people actually needed. And that was fascinating.
0: I read that at that time in your life, when you were 14, uh, you discovered that people were able to make a living doing what you are doing now, and that what you're doing now is exactly what you wanted to do over 40 years ago. How would you describe exactly what
1: that is? Well, you know, shortly before my dad left the company he was working for, the owner got in a ski accident and broke his back in Chile and discovered that he wouldn't have fallen in the lift line if he had had a different kind of ski bindings. And since he was an aeronautical engineer, he invented a better ski binding. So this company that made parts for nuclear weapons also started making ski bindings. And my dad came home one day when I was 14 or 15 and said, so we need to figure out how to get more people to market these things. So at that age, I sort of became the head of marketing for a Fortune 1000 company because they had never tried to sell anything to anybody except the government. So I began to understand, well, what's an ad, and why is there an ad, and what's copy, and why is there copy? But then in seeing the world that he was living in, I discovered there were people like Zig Ziglar who could get up in front of a crowd and teach and talk. And I started reading books for fun that opened my eyes to other ways of seeing. And I realized a human wrote those books, and you could do that for a living. But the biggest shift for me was when I was 17, and I started working at a summer camp in Canada.
0: Ah, yes, Camp Arawan.
1: Exactly, still there. Um, And I was able to help 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds see the world differently, deal with their fear, sit up straight, breathe, and paddle a canoe. Literally, not a figurative canoe, an actual canoe. Yeah, yeah, you
0: said that was your first formative creative experience. Yeah,
1: and I think I've just been trying to do the same thing ever since.
0: You teach style canoeing at this camp in Canada, and you've been doing this
1: 30 years. Off That's
0: amazing. Yeah, it
1: was a really extraordinary privilege. The, the thing is that you can simulate that. The, the sport that I used to teach was invented by a guy who taught my teacher how to do it. So I'm second generation. And understanding what that lineage means, understanding that you can invent a new way of being out of whole cloth, it's not that different from what you've done at SVA, right? To say, there's this profession Let me invent the profession. Let me teach other people how to do the profession. Let me find people who maybe need a light turned on or someone pointing them in a different direction because it's about showing up and doing the work and sitting there with people who need you to help them become the people who will teach the next people.
0: And I read that when you were doing this, when you were teaching style canoeing, it was the first time you discovered that the best way to attract people was to help them connect with their dreams. How did you even recognize that that was something that you could do in that way?
1: Why would anyone have trouble articulating and reaching their dream? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
0: we can talk about that for the entire
1: interview. And it's a four-letter word. Fear. Exactly. And if you find the fear, you can see it. You can acknowledge it. You can learn to dance with it. You cannot make it go away. And it turns out that adults are really good at hiding the fear and really good at coming up with reasons to not go there. Kids haven't had as much practice. So starting with 12-year-olds was really useful because they gave themselves away. No 12-year-old actually dreams of paddling a canoe all the way across the lake and back by themselves. What they dream of is agency. What they dream of is being seen. And Those are the two things they're also afraid of. So if you can figure out how to get in early, early in the arc of your engagement with someone, and figure out where the fear is, and figure out how to help someone act as if, to learn to dance with it, then you've got a shot at teaching them design thinking. Then you've got a shot at teaching them a practice that will enable them to chop wood and carry water on their way to doing the work that they seek to do.
0: One of the things that I've been thinking about quite a bit in relation to fear and what is the bedrock emotion that is paralyzed by fear, I think is the notion that when push comes to shove, we are unable to rely on ourselves. And I think if we felt intrinsically that we could rely on ourselves— we wouldn't have as much fear of uncertainty or of the unknown, which is really all it is. You know, we That's can't... fascinating.
1: Let me add one level around that, though. Okay. It's not that we can't rely on ourselves. It's that we don't believe we can rely on Exactly, ourselves. exactly. Two different things.
0: Yeah, exactly. And
1: so all of this is about our narrative. Right. That when you're four, you're not really sure you could run across the street before a car would hit you. Now we are, right? So we can rely on ourselves to right. do that. It's always the new thing that we hesitate, right? Right. Or the thing that that other people are looking at.
0: I understand that one of your first jobs out of business school was working at a software startup and the CEO was your mentor and let you make all sorts of mistakes, um, which I think is a wonderful thing. And and my question here is, was this a job where one of your clients at America Online threatened to have you arrested if you stepped foot on his property?
1: Uh, Two different emergencies. Uh, no, the first one was Spinnaker Software. Okay, We helped invent educational computer games in the early 80s. And it was an extraordinary group of people. Uh, one person went on to run a billion-dollar startup in California. Someone else went on to run the video division of Columbia TriStar. Just out of 30 of us, it really was this magical moment. And uh, David Cease, uh, who was my boss, didn't know he had hired me. The chairman had hired me for a summer internship and forgot to tell his partner the president. And <laughs> I showed up my first day at work, and David was stuck with me. The AOL story was actually a woman who threatened to have oh, me arrested. okay. They were our biggest client at yo which was an early internet pioneer. Yes. And... Something went wrong with our systems, and a whole bunch of people at AOL got an email, not about AOL, but about arid extra dry right, deodorant. Right, the,
0: the clients had switched, right? Yeah. You sent all the it emails was not good. to the opposite clients. It was not clients. good at all. Yeah. And then
1: it happened again a week later. And when I, when I <laughs> called Audrey to apologize, I called and I said, I'm getting on a plane. I want to show you how serious I am. I'm flying down to Vienna, Virginia, to apologize. And that's when she threatened my livelihood, if not my life. It was not a good day. <laughs> But
0: you recovered.
1: You recovered. Just barely. This month.
0: I read that you were a beta tester for the first desktop publishing program for the Mac in 84. And it was for the first desktop
1: publishing program, Ready, Set, Go. I loved Ready, Set, Go. And not only that, you know who I got my beta Mac from? I was 24, he was 26, Guy Kawasaki. Oh, so it's wow. such a small world. So that was my next world.
0: question. How did that How did that even happen to you? It
1: was his job, right? I was at a software company. They needed us to make software for them. But think about it. Wow. Guy and I, there's only like 20 people in the circle of people who write books like we do. Right. And we met each other, what, 30 years ago? What was he like when he was 24? He was just like he is exactly now, except he wasn't as good at hockey.
0: <laughs> so in one week in 1986... You married your wife, Helene, you quit your job, you moved to New York City, and you started your own company. What was going on in your biorhythms or your astrological (laughs) chart to inspire so much change in a seven-day period?
1: Well, you know, I'm just very uncomfortable talking about this journey of mine because I don't think it's that interesting because I was there. Okay, well, I I think it's interesting
0: and I wasn't there,
1: so. But I do think the lesson is that all of us have stories like this. That what we say we want is a regular, periodic, stepwise progression from here to exactly where we want to go. But the story we tell ourselves about our past is never that. And the decisions we make about our future actually don't fuel that. That is what industrialists want from us. It's what the placement office wants from us. But it's not what we actually want in a life well lived. So, you know, these stories are interesting to the extent that any of them could have been different and I still would be me. That the only thing that would have kept me from being me is if it had all worked out. Mm-hmm. And it's all the things that were just nutty, that were happened too fast or uh, with little foresight or just by the skin of my teeth. Those are the things that we add up. And in the moment we say, oh my goodness, I wish things were calmer. But in fact, when we look back and we say, w- how did this happen? It happened because of the things that were chaotic.
0: I think that they happen because of the chaos, but I think that what makes them fascinating, whether they're your stories or anybody's stories, is if you are in that chaos and you're honest about the chaos as you've been, you've been really transparent about all the rejection letters and all the failure and all the fear. I think that because... There's so much stigma against admitting some of that. I mean, you've talked about the failure pornography that's going on now, aside from then, because I don't even know that those are authentic. Exactly. But because you've been so clear about the fact that not only did these failures and rejections not kill you, um, that you actually managed to turn them into something that was really universal And something that I think has been enormously helpful and inspiring to people. So it's not so much whether or not they're interesting to you because you've lived them and know them. And I think it's sort of like a great outfit. You might not think it's a great outfit because you've worn it 43 times. But for the person that's seeing it for the first time, they're like, great outfit.
1: Cute. This is (laughs) my cardigan. So here's a story that happened right after that. So I'm unemployed. Uh, I have uh, a lovely bride And I'm living in the law school dorm, and I read an article about Faith Popcorn and Brain Reserve. Now, for most marketers in those days, uh, whatever this was 25, 30 years ago, she was a rock star because she got to just work on interesting projects. So I said, that'll solve my problem. I'll just work four weeks a year for Faith Popcorn. So I don't have a car. I get on my bike. I ride it to Macy's with my resume. I have my resume gift-wrapped by the Macy's Gift Wrap Department. And then I get a little gift card and I on the gift card I write, I'll give you the other half when we meet. And then I take a $20 bill and I rip it in half and I put it in the thing with the gift card. Then I ride my bike over to Faith Popcorn's Brain Reserve office and I drop off the gift wrap box and I ride my bike home. Now, I get my bike back to the dorm on Mercer Street and I walk into the apartment and the phone's ringing. And I pick it up and it's Faith. And she says, this is great. How soon can you be here? I say, no problem. I'll be there in a few minutes. So this time I take a cab and I race back up to her offices and she and her partner are sitting there and I walk in and I tell them a story and they tell me a story and we're jumping up and down and they're jumping up and down and everyone's jumping up and down and it's a real hee-haw of a moment. And she says, how much time do you have? We think we have nine, maybe 10 projects for you to work on in the next little bit. And each project pays $15,000. So all I need is two and I'll be fine. She's got nine. And this is great. So she says, we'll call you tomorrow. They don't call me tomorrow. They don't call me the day after tomorrow. They don't call me for a week. They don't call me for a month. I'm like, what's this about? So I call a couple of times. No one returns my call. I realize at this point, nothing's going to happen. So as I'm living my life, everywhere I go to work on a project, if it's out of town, I buy the ugliest postcard I can find. And I mail it to Faith at Brain Reserve. Hi, I'm in Cleveland working on this project. Wish you were here. And over the course of the next nine months, I'm sending Faith Popcorn postcards from around the world as I'm struggling my way to build a business. No response, not one. Two years go by. I'm still really struggling, and I need a Christmas gift because, you, you know, it's how you build the brand. What are you going to send all the people in your database? I don't have a lot of money. So I buy a $19 laminating machine and use FileMaker Pro to turn my address book into nicely typeset, Franklin Gothic condensed cards with the address and name of each person. And I make luggage tags. For all the people in my database, 150 of them, with a little note, mail out everyone their Christmas gift. A week later, the phone rings. It's Faith Popcorn. Two years later. Hi, Faith. She says, Seth, Brain Reserve has a space in it or doesn't have a space in it. You did it wrong. Could you make me a new set of luggage tags, please? Oh, my God. That's the entire exchange. Okay. So fast forward five, ten years later. I get a call from her former partner who has a book. He wants my help. He says, can I meet with you? I said, you can meet with me, but you're going to have to answer a couple questions when you come. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> he says, fine. So he comes, I said, what's up? What happened? He says, I have no idea what happened, but I can tell you this. There was a special bulletin board in the office just for your postcards. <gasps> oh. I love that story. I love it's that story. It's completely off topic, but I thought I'd It, share it is
0: a wonderful story. Thank you so much for sharing it. Oh, my God. Now, you've written that the people who turn you down usually have a reason, but they're almost certainly not telling you why. And you've written about a number of fake reasons. I don't like the color. I don't like it. It's too expensive. You don't have enough references. There was a typo in your resume or a luggage tag. Why do you think those are fake? What what are, are the easier excuses? Is it that we're unwilling to hurt each other's feelings? What, is it artificial harmony?
1: So one of the most important things that anyone who sells ideas needs to learn is Zig Ziglar's concept of the obligating question. Zig was the greatest sales trainer who ever lived and a friend of mine. Zig said after the third objection, you stop answering objections. That the person says, you know, it's too expensive, it's the wrong color. You answer those, they're still saying no. Then you ask the obligating question. The obligating question is this. Oh, so you're saying this is wrong with it. If we could agree that we could fix that problem, are you prepared to go ahead today? And the answer to the obligating question is rarely yes. If the person says, well, no, then I'd have to blah, 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 then you understand that their objection isn't actually the objection. Right. It's just a good way to get you to go away because buying anything is really frightening. It involves change. Change involves risk. Risk involves death. So saying yes and dying are only an inch apart from each other. So when people are hesitating or complaining or criticizing or giving you an objection, what they're really saying is, there aren't enough benefits on offer to match the risk I would feel in making this change happen. And the answer to that, there are two. One, figure out how to put way more benefits on the table, way more urgency, way more attention. Or, find somebody else who wants change more than this person does. But what will not work is bit by bit answering their objections because you almost never answer your way to a yes.
0: I think as well when somebody says they don't want to spend the money, what they're really saying is not that they don't have the money, but that it just doesn't have enough value for them. Because I think if people were only basing decisions on whether or not they have enough money— then we'd have no such thing as credit cards and charge cards, and people wouldn't be buying the most expensive uh, smartphone. They'd be
1: buying the most functional. Yeah, but let's let's take that one step further, and this would be a, a great exercise for anybody who's really trying to understand sales and marketing. Go to a bus terminal with a $20 bill. Walk up to the first person you meet and say, will you buy this $20 bill from me for $10? And they won't. And they won't for a couple of reasons. First of all, no one goes to the bus terminal looking for a bargain on a $20 bill. And secondly, because they don't believe you. Why don't they believe you? Because why would anyone sell them a $20 bill for $10? The alternative is put the $20 bill in an envelope. Put it in your neighbor's mailbox and run away before they see you. Do it again next week. Do it again the week after. Add in the fourth week, knock on your neighbor's door and say, hi. I'm the guy who left $320 bills in your mailbox over the last 3 weeks. Wanna buy the fourth one for 10 bucks? They'll buy the fourth one. So, it's about trust? Yeah. It's about belief, it's about risk, it's about being a human.
0: You've talked a lot about risk, and you talked quite a bit about how for many, many years you were what you referred to as 2 weeks away from bankruptcy. And you would do whatever it took to make payroll. You talk at one point about going window shopping at restaurants and going home and eating macaroni and cheese. You described it as, in this way, I just failed and failed and failed and failed. What kept you going? How did you come up with enough gumption to go knock on somebody's door and say, after running away for three weeks with the $20 bill in the mailbox, want to buy a $20 bill for 10 bucks?
1: You know, I've thought about that a bunch. I told myself at the time that I could get a job as a bank teller. And I realized how horrible my life would become if I was going to be a bank teller for the next 30 years.
0: Well, you almost were, essentially, when you were working in the nursing homes, right? Weren't you?
1: Yeah, but I ran away from anything that felt like that as fast as I could. And, you know, that project that you're referring to, of building a giant spreadsheet for a chain of nursing homes... At least I didn't have a boss, right? But I'm pretty much unmanageable as a human, and I knew that about myself. But I think telling myself I could get a job actually helped me go forward because I realized I had a choice, that it's when we're stuck with what feels like no choice that it's super easy to give up. But if you believe that you have a choice, that it's a voluntary act to put yourself in the world, that makes it easier. And then the second thing, something I've always believed since the rhythm days, is that the thing I'm offering is worth more than it costs. That's really important. I never felt like anyone was doing me a favor by buying from me. I felt like I was doing them a favor by making something for them at a discount.
0: Where does that self-esteem come from?
1: I think it wasn't about me. It was about my product. It was about my idea that it was separate from me that I didn't feel like I was selling me. I was saying to Stanley Kaplan, SAT prep books will transform your business. You don't have SAT prep books. I know how to make them. Let's have a conversation first about whether they will transform your business, and then if you want me to prove I can make them, I will.
0: Clearly- it wasn't a slam dunk. You had to work really hard to convince him.
1: Six and a half years, Yeah, <laughs> right? But I knew I was right because the math is easy to do because you could look at it from the outside and say, as a brand, any kid who buys a $19 book and then doesn't finish it is way more likely to buy the $700 course because they already trust you because they've interacted with you. It didn't cost you anything, right? And I was good at seeing this back to design thinking, seeing things that didn't seem like they were designed right. But and it's more than that just,
0: because you took it took six and a half years for you to convince Stanley Kaplan to do this. You, you stuck in there for six and a half years. You... Experienced 900 rejection letters before you got your first non-rejection letter.
1: Right. And that's all about Zig. That's about my dad. It's about deciding to raise myself after I left the house in a culture and an environment of generous persistence. No one who wants to compete athletically doesn't go to the gym, doesn't look at their diet. You train. Why do we think we don't need to train to sell our ideas? We need to. So I was listening for one hour, two hours, three hours a day to these audio tapes that were training me.
0: Yeah, I have come to the conclusion now because I've been teaching undergrads for such a long time about how to go out and get a job in the marketplace once they graduate that it's really not about getting a job at all. It's about winning a job (laughs) because you're competing against so many people for the same opportunities that you have to be in the best possible shape that you can intellectually and competitively to be able to win this opportunity that so many other people want at the same time.
1: Yeah, I love that. Let's, if we could, dig in for one second. Yeah, absolutely. There are two ways to do that. One is to fit in more than anyone else, and the other is to stand out more than anyone else. It's almost impossible to fit in more than anyone else because a disinterested observer will not notice that you are that much more fitting in than someone else, and the only person who's going to hire the one who's fitting in is the disinterested one. So it's about standing out. So the way you get a job after graduating is six months, a year, two years before that, choosing to become the person that someone who cares can't live without. Right. How do you
0: differentiate and find your own voice and find meaning in that voice?
1: Which means that most people won't get the joke. Most people don't want anything to do with you. And you have to be A-OK with that.
0: Right. I have one last question for you about your past and then, then we'll go into the future. Talk about the book you published titled Email Addresses of the Rich and Famous. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) Sorry, I had to. to.
1: Roger Ebert, may he rest in peace. So I was a book packager, which used to be the best job in the world because book publishers didn't have enough books. There, There was a shortage. And if you could think of a book, a complicated book, you could sell it on Monday. They'd pay you for it in advance, and then you could build it and give it to them. So I get this idea there's this thing called the smiley, which is now called an emoticon or an emoji. So I didn't invent the smiley, but I was there when he was invented. And I said, someone should make the smiley dictionary. I know, I will. So I wrote the proposal for the smiley dictionary on Monday, and I finished the book on Thursday. Now I only got paid $10,000 to make a book, but it only took me four days, and it was fun. You got to make a book. But I got this idea early on, way early on in the days of email, If I want to send an email to Roger Ebert, how can I? And I knew a couple people. I was able to get 500 addresses to get started. Email addresses of rich and famous. It was mostly a social commentary. It was about the fact that, guess what? Email's about to arrive. Some people saw it as a spam dictionary. Like, let me just type all the email addresses into a big file and email every person in the book over and over and over and over again, which I did not expect. Roger Ebert was quoted in the Wall Street Journal cursing me for all eternity because his email address was in the book, and I still feel badly
0: about it. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, I I have to say, one of the things I like most about doing this podcast is the research and going into the rabbit hole of finding things out about people. You taught me a new term recently. I mentioned it before, the whole notion of failure pornography. Why do you think that that's something that has become such a hot topic in in such a cliched way?
1: Okay, well, there's nests within nests. First, let's define it. The same way that pornography is nothing at all like love, failure pornography doesn't have a lot in common with actual failure. It's somebody who goes into a Krispy Kreme, makes a ridiculous request, and has the clerk say no right? That this is just way more of
0: an obstacle than it is an actual failure,
1: really. Yeah, because you didn't extend yourself. There was nothing about it that could have been generous, that you can write off the failure in your head because it's the same way a pornographer can. It was just fake. So that's what it is. Why is it popular? Well, it's the easiest form of content to make. If you're willing to embarrass yourself, you can put it up. You don't have to be good at it because being bad at it is actually part of it, right? And in a world where everyone owns their own media channel, where everyone can publish anything they want, if you are lazy, looking for a shortcut, don't believe in yourself very much, what an easy way to put stuff into the world. Who's looking at it? People who have mistaken a form of intimate vulnerability with actual genuine connection. And so what you end up doing is collecting a crowd around yourself, hiding your fear by showing your fear, none of which advances the ball. Because what advances the ball is generous connection. Actual risk taken in the service of an idea or a movement that will help other people. That's hard. That's really hard. So people don't do it. They look for the shortcut instead. What I've said to people who I see interact doing this is you're better than that, right? You're better than that because this is not just hurting the people who are watching it. It's mostly hurting you and you have a better route to making the impact you want to make in the world.
0: You've been putting quite a lot of material online for people to read and learn from. It's quite the opposite of failure pornography. It is, I think, some of the most generous uh, contributions to the world of business and culture. Um, And you've written over 20 books. You've been blogging every day since January 15th, 2002. Happy 15th anniversary. Your first post was titled Boring, and it reads as follows. I was stranded today. I had to spend hours in Nyack, New Jersey, so I shopped. Actually, I tried to shop, but I failed. I spent two hours at the mall, and it was boring. Having done most of my shopping online lately, I'd nearly forgotten how boring it is. So, Seth, my question here is, would it be safe to say that you started your blog because you were bored? Uh,
1: No. (laughs) Here's the deal. Um, I had been blogging in some form for more than five years before that, but I can't find it. I can't either. First, it was an email newsletter that I started in 91, and then it evolved into something else. And I had started in 91, long before I coined the term permission marketing, for a very simple reason. I thought I had something to say, but I also believed that by frequently and generously showing up in front of people who wanted to hear from me, I would earn their trust. And if I earn their trust, it would be easier for me to solve their problems. And so that has been the arc of it ever since, which is some people go online and measure their return on equity or their return on effort. I'm trying to maximize trust. That I think we have a trust shortage. And if I have more trust, I'm going to be able to make more of a difference. So I'm not looking to be better known. I don't promote stuff. I don't show up on Facebook. I don't work to have any followers on Twitter because I don't tweet. This isn't about that. This is about among the people who want to find me, can I show up in a way that's trustworthy and can I do it in a way that will help other people get the joke? Because I would rather live in a world where more people trust more people.
0: Now your blog is followed by hundreds of thousands of people, was nearly always at the top of Ad Age's power 150. And as you put it, back when the algorithm was interesting, the blog was ranked by Technorati as the number one blog in the world written by a single individual. Yet you've stated this about web stats. We are hooked on data. Advertisers want more data. Direct marketers want more data. Who saw it? Who clicked? What percentage? What's trending? What's yielding? But there's one group that doesn't need more data. Anyone who's making a long-term commitment. Anyone who seeks to make art, to make a difference, to challenge the status quo. Data paves the road to the bottom. It is the lazy way to figure out what to do next. It's obsessed with the short-term. Data gets us the Kardashians.
1: My question is so post. good.
0: It's such a good one. And this is something I, I was talking to Maria Popova about. We both want to know the answer to this question. How do you assess the impact of your work without statistics? Is the anecdotal enough? All
1: right. Well, let me make a small rant here to make the distinction between brand marketing and direct marketing. Okay. Lester Wonderman invented direct marketing. He was on the board of yo He's a giant. Lester Wonderman invented the American Express card and the little gold box on the Columbia Record Club. Lester Wonderman understands what direct marketing is. You, my friend, who's measuring everything, are not a direct marketer because what you're really doing is pretending that you're a brand marketer by caring about all the fancy parties and the photo shoots and pretending you're a direct marketer by looking at numbers that don't actually matter. You're using it to hide. That what great direct marketers do is they figure out where to be, where they matter, where they can be seen, and where they can be trusted. And then numbers come second or third or fourth. But when you're sitting there saying, should I sponsor this podcast or that podcast who has better numbers? That makes no sense. It doesn't make sense as a brand marketer. It doesn't make sense as a direct marketer. What we have to do is say, yeah, we'll get to the numbers later. First, let's get to the truth. Let's get to, are we significant? Are we mattering in this interaction.
0: But that's from the marketing side. What about the content creators, which is one of the worst phrases I, I've ever uttered? Um, what about the people making the art and the sense that they want to know if what they're doing is worthwhile or reaching people or making an impact?
1: So Michael Schrag coined this great idea, which is that what every great artist does, what every great marketer does is make someone change. Who are you trying to change? How have you changed them? That's what we do. Harley-Davidson is a great brand. Why? Because they turned disconnected outsiders into respected insiders. That's what they do. What did Apple Computer do? Lots of people made personal computers. Apple Computer turned people with bad taste about digital goods into people with good taste about digital goods. And once you had good taste, then you were hooked on the whole thing, right? So what we can measure which can be as anecdotal as you want, is, is anyone being changed? Because if no one's being changed, then you're instantly replaceable. Having lots of Twitter followers doesn't mean you're changing anyone. You might just be entertaining them, right? It might just be that they need to keep up with the Joneses, but you're not actually causing change to happen. So for me, yeah, once a year or so, I look at the numbers on my blog. For example, half as many people visit my blog now as five years ago, right? I'd like to know that, in general, every five years, because that tells me something about the state of the web. Is my blog half as good as it was five years ago? I don't think so. So what does it mean? It means that consumption trends have changed. Fine. I don't care. Did I change someone today? And if I changed five people, that would be plenty. Ten is a bonus.
0: And how do you know if you're changing
1: them? Because I hear from them.
0: So it is anecdotal then. That's fine with me. Yeah. You've said about your blog that day after day, year after year, my blog shows up. And I'm delighted if people read it, thrilled if it resonates. But the truth is, even if no one reads my blog, I'd still write it. The fears I write about are often my fears, the stuckness, the missed opportunities, the awe that's possible in the face of possibility. These are all feelings that belong to me as much as they're yours. Aside from this anecdotal feedback, what gives you the sense that the fears you write about are so universal?
1: I don't even know if everyone in the world is a robot except for me, right? That, <laughs> right. That, that we've all got this arrogance as humans that we imagine that the color yellow for me is the color yellow for you, and that I don't like Comic Sans and neither do you, right? That there's this zeitgeist and this internal narrative. So, yeah, I have the arrogance of an artist to say, I think I am sharing a feeling that other people are sharing, that I am not alone, And if I'm wrong, well, then you don't have to read my blog. And a lot of people don't because it's not filled with shortcuts and it's not filled with angst or hatred. And I know that I could certainly make my numbers go up if I did some of that and some lists as well. But I'm not in the numbers business. I'm in the changing business.
0: Your new book is the second uh, of your collections of writing. This particular book is a collection of your last four years of writing from your blog, your eBooks, your medium posts. And it is titled, What Does It Sound Like When You Change Your Mind? And it can be described as follows. It's 18 pounds. It's 800 pages long. You needed to use container ships to move the book around. You've published only... I'm not sure if it's 5,500 or 6,500 copies because I've heard both. And in a recent conversation with Brian Koppelman, you both agreed there was something perverse in this. (laughs) (laughs) That was so interesting to hear that word used to describe the book. It's perverse. Um, What was the motivation for creating a book of this magnitude?
1: Well, I work in the least substantial medium ever invented in that, not only does it not get printed on a piece of paper, it could disappear as soon as the server goes down know, and be it's gone terrifying, forever.
0: terrifying, So
1: it's not in homes across the world, and all we have is a memory of it. It seems to me, as a book person, that if I have the opportunity to put it into something more substantial, I could transform not just my work, but the way people interact with my work because I could take this thing that's gossamer and turn it into something that's concrete, and that when it sits in front of you in this fabled 500-year-old form factor, it gains something, at least for me it does. And the fact that I was able to illustrate it with work from the great Thomas Hawk, the photographer, transformed it again, because I didn't just put pictures of what the post was about. I created tension in the juxtaposition of the pictures and the posts. What that means is, for a few thousand people, here is a collectible that turns the insubstantial into substantial, that turns the temporary into the permanent, and that gives you something that you can point other people to, which furthers my mission of trust and change, which creates more impact. And it's really
0: fun. It is fun. It's a really wonderful journey through ideas, through art, through provocation. I read on the site that you created for the book that you questioned whether or not it was selfish and actually thought that it might be selfish to do something like this. Why?
1: Why selfish? So many of us have leverage now, the leverage to reach a lot of people, the leverage to create things that generate value for others or to move that value toward philanthropy. So every time we make a decision about how to spend three months of our life how to invest hundreds of thousands of dollars, how many... The book is double carbon neutral, so we didn't say, well, at least we're going to depopulate the earth to make this book. (laughs) Um, But you can't prioritize everything all the time. And for me, it's the variety of it that sometimes, often, I'm saying, here, it's free, spread it all you want. And other times I'm saying, you know what? This one costs 180 ridiculous dollars and almost as much to ship it all the way to Jakarta if you want it there. And that might not be for you, but that variability, that variety, I think is part of the package that I'm trying to bring to people.
0: The title of the book, What Does It Sound Like When You Change Your Mind, was taken from a post of the same name you wrote on March 4th, 2014, wherein you recall a mistake that you had made. Can you share that story with
1: us? Well, it was only a small mistake. It cost me $40 billion. Starting an internet company in 1989 or 1990 was insane. There was no World Wide Web. It was just Archie and Veronica and email. That when we eventually raised money from Fred Wilson, we had to persuade the VCs that email was going to be a thing. That's, like, that's how early we were. And then the web came along. And I looked at it and I said, well, this is just like Prodigy except it's slower and uglier and there's no business model. We're not interested. Help. (laughs) Yeah. And so, we didn't start Yahoo and we didn't start AltaVista and we didn't start Google and we didn't start Groupon and we didn't start Facebook. We just ignored it. And it took me months of not seeing it when people who worked for me, who I trusted, were beginning to see it. And then one day, literally a noise went on in my head and I said, oh, that. And then we shifted gears. But, We don't do that often enough because we embrace sunk costs instead of ignoring them. And we say, well, what would it mean to my self-esteem and to my short-term life for me to admit that I was wrong and start doing something else?
0: Why are people so afraid of doing that?
1: We're bad at experiencing the future, and we're excellent at experiencing the present. And something that might be good in the future that feels bad today— feels bad today. So we get stuck.
0: You talk about how books have so much Proustian baggage.
1: Um, Can you elaborate? Well, it's plus and minus. So for me, a book is a magical gateway into all the things that make a great day. For a lot of people, a book is Miss Binder in seventh grade yelling at you because you didn't do your homework. That for an enormous number of people in the United States, The last time they read a book for fun is when they're 12. That the typical person in the United States, average, buys one book for fun a year. Because books don't remind us of what they could. We've been pushed and reminded too often that they remind us of fitting in at school. And so it's no surprise that most people avoid them.
0: Do you think that your books help change that or that this particular book can help change that?
1: I generally don't seek out people who don't like books when I publish a book. I learned that the hard way, that as a book packager, I came up with a whole bunch of books that would be perfect for people who hate books. You know what people who hate books don't do? They don't go to the bookstore. (laughs) And so the goal, if you want a book to work, like Purple Cow, is you write a book for people who like books, and then you make it easy for people who like books to give that book to people who don't like books, right? And that seems elliptical, but it works. So the book I wrote, the last original book I did was called What To Do When It's Your Turn. And I published it myself, I designed it myself, and you cannot buy it in a bookstore, you have to buy it from me online, and I will not sell you one. You can get a three pack, a five pack, a 12 pack, a 99 pack. What are you gonna do with a five pack? You gotta give four of them away, so you become my distributor. So I sell a book to people who like books, and those people give it to people who will tolerate a book.
0: After your last conventional book, so to speak, you disavowed traditional publishing and said you would never publish another book traditionally ever again. You haven't, and your Kickstarters have been massively successful. Why do you still want to be creating books if you're not interested in publishing them and manufacturing them and shipping them and distributing them in these ways to get them into most people's hands.
1: Yeah, welcome to my horrible neurosis. (laughs) You know, uh, books are magic. I love books. And I wish that the independent bookstore chain store scenario was vibrant. I wish that book publishers didn't think that bookstores were their customers. I wish that there was a way for the kind of book that I want to write to reach the kind of people I want to reach without me doing it all myself, right? It's an enormous amount
0: of work, just the shipping alone.
1: Well, and the putting on a show every time you want to let people know. So I have this huge advantage, which I can just tell people on my blog, there's a book and a lot of people will take action. That's great. But what most authors dream of, and I'm going to put you in this category, tell me if I'm wrong, is the J.D. Salinger lifestyle where we do our best work in the book and then someone else is in charge of making sure that the world gets the book. And unfortunately, that's a frustrating process, getting harder by the day. So I opted out of that because it was frustrating me and it was frustrating my editors. They're eager to have me do another one, but I don't know if I want to go on that journey because I can reach 10, 20 times as many people with a blog post. Right. So why should I withhold it? So now for me, a book is an object, and there are lots of ways to bring an object to the world in various volumes that don't involve the traditional method.
0: At 800 pages, Seth, it is hard to narrow down what specific pieces to ask you about. This is a book that is truly a journey. It is something that you can savor over. There are so many Ways that this book can impact who you are just by the sheer virtue of experiencing it—that's um, that's probably the best thing that I can say about it. It's a gift. It's Thank a you. gift, Seth. And so I do that's, want to ask that means you so much. Thank you. So in a piece titled "The Last Minute," you write, "I'm not good at the last minute. It's really fraught with risk and extra expense. I'm much better doing things the first minute instead." Why is that?
1: I, I guess. I would reverse it and say, I am just mystified at how many people rely on the last minute, that they use the last minute to shore up their reserves and their resolve so that they can get over their fear. Because at the last minute you can get people to do a lot of stuff. Because at the last minute, you know, in architecture, the charrette exists because the last minute breaks down our resistance. That clients who approve something right at the deadline, why are they waiting? They're waiting because they're afraid, and the last minute shows up to get them over the hump. It's so unprofessional because it leads to sloppy work, it leads to stress, and it costs a lot. It costs a lot of time and misconnections and money. So as a professional, when I was a book packager, I did 120 books, never went on over budget, not one time, never missed a deadline because I did a lot of stuff in the first minute. That's what professionals do. They hurry at the beginning, and they polish at the end. And if you have a client who's not acting that way, then your job as a professional is to teach them to act that way or to get a new client. Because we're defined by our clients. And if you are the kind of person that takes clients that have unprofessional last-minute behavior, you will be judged by that.
0: You wrote this about the notion of change. Rapid change exposes the work of outsiders, neophytes, and most of all, those attracted by the chance to grow. Rapid change sweeps aside the status quo and those that defend it. It replaces them with those willing to leap. Revolutions make heroes at least as much as heroes make revolutions. This reminded me of something that you said at a conference about the role branding had in the current election. And I've been quoting you ever since. You stated that government doesn't make culture. Culture makes government. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on what kinds of heroes can make revolutions now.
1: Um, As usual, Debbie, that's a profound connection that you're making. Here's what we know. It always starts at the grassroots. Not sometimes, always. So that the Reverend Martin Luther King could have lived any other time, but he wouldn't have been him. He was him because there were a group of people who were ready. And that when we organize just five people, just 10 people, just 20 people, that is our work in the grassroots. Because sometimes those 20 people become 400 and those 400 become 10,000. You don't need a permit. You don't need a license. You don't need authority to be the person who puts ideas into the world in ways that lead to connection. So we spend way too much time waiting for the hero, looking to the other, saying, who's going to tell me what to do? And now more than any time in my lifetime, we have a culture, a technology, a world where anyone can do this. But it's really hard and really scary and takes a really long time. None of those things have gotten any better. It's just that more people have a ticket to play the game.
0: In a piece titled, Contempt is Contagious, you declare the only emotion that spreads more reliably than contempt is panic. You you also talk in in your book and on your blog about the notion of what kind of energy are you bringing to any situation? Are you right. generating enthusiasm and generosity and kindness or are you draining the oxygen out of a room exactly and and it seems that in when you're draining the oxygen out of the room you are somehow igniting contempt and panic yeah and i feel like a lot of that is happening now and it's very hard to figure out how to put out that flame so to speak
1: well so reciprocity is buried deep within us and within our culture. Someone opens a door for you, you come to the next door, you really feel like it's your turn to open the door for them. So it works positively, but it also works negatively. Someone treats you with contempt that dehumanizes you, that breaks the connection between the two of you. So it's very difficult to respond instead of react. If we react, we're going to return that contempt because by dehumanizing us, we feel an obligation to return the favor and dehumanize you that contempt cycle spirals. So great teachers throughout history have taught us that the braver, stronger, kinder person breaks the cycle, right? You can use whatever ancient spiritual text you want to find out about turning the other cheek to find out, well, where is the pain that caused that? Where is the misunderstanding that caused that? How do we create enough air, oxygen, life in this room so that, A, I don't feel like I have to react. I can respond. And B, the other person can figure out how to reciprocate my calmness with their calmness. And all you have to do is go to a a pet shelter and watch two dogs see each other. The instant thing for them to do is have a fight. But every once in a while, the confident dog will be able to say to the other dog that's seeking status, I'll let you calm down for now. I don't have to fight with you. And that's how the pack ends up back in sync, is that the stronger one is able to take a deep breath and create space for positive things to happen. Now, the problem with mass culture is it's different than two people standing at a revolving door because it's lots and lots of people. So even if just one person tries to de-escalate, there might be someone else ready to take it on. And then when you add to it the fact that the media makes a living by spreading panic and makes a living by escalating contempt, now we have a real problem. Because we know that when a business does something for a living, they make more of it. And we have to figure out as humans how to choose not to consume that, not to buy into that. And as marketers, I think we have to make the choice not to pay for it.
0: So what do we do in times like these? I was working last night and heard the news and it was big news. And all of a sudden you get catapulted into what's happening right now. And you're looking at Twitter and MSNBC and you're looking at every possible um tunnel to find an answer to find some sort of meaning or understanding and a friend of mine actually texted me last night and said not since 911 have i been trapped like this for the past several days i've been hypnotized by television and social media as i watch the world go to hell in a handbasket i would wager money that productivity in new york city has decreased since he took office. What advice do you have for those of us that are really suffering in the sort of spiral of the daily massacre now? And how do we rise above it and try to do the best possible work for ourselves and for humanity?
1: Well, you know, Debbie, it's not easy. It's not easy for me either. And I think the best thing we can do, as James Murphy said, is the best way to complain is to make something. And what we have to figure out is how to disconnect ourselves from the circle of fear and from the circle of contempt and even panic and settle down and make something that matters instead. You know, think about what should you have been doing in the weeks after 9-11 or during Watergate or during whatever tempest has come before. The best way to complain is to make something.
0: Thank you, Seth. I think that's wonderful, inspiring, and really doable advice for a lot of us. To learn more about Seth Godin, just Google Seth or go to SethGodin.com.
1: And if you want the big book, we only have a few hundred left. It's at MoreSeth.com. I urge you to do that.
0: This is the 12th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Mark Dudlick. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can
1: subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.
0: You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down.